This morning we're talking about reaping what is sown. And let me say before we begin that not everything that happens to us is because of something that we have planted in the early days of our lives. We see in the case of Job that he was a righteous man. A lot of bad things happened to him. We ought to also note that we don't receive the ultimate result of what we have done in life, or that would be eternal condemnation. But we do see that in God's providence, the things that we do seem to come back to us in life. We'll see our introduction and then Jacob's arrival in Haran, the country of his family where he's going to look for a wife. He has an agreement with Laban. Then he becomes aware of deception that Laban has perpetrated upon him. And then there is affliction in the family. In the mid-1700s in England, George Montague, the Earl of Halifax, was looking for a bride. He thought he had found the woman of his dreams and the daughter of Sir Thomas Dunk. Sir Thomas was a rich saddler. And it was said that George loved the girl genuinely as well as her money. Now, a saddler in that day was a man who manufactured saddles, and it was a very lucrative business, kind of like being in the automotive industry today because everyone was traveling on horseback. But there were a couple of obstacles standing in the way of amorous George. Her dad, Sir Thomas, had ordered in his will that she should only marry a saddler. He also said that whoever married her would have to take his last name, Dunk. Not a very good deal. What do you think George Montague would do? Well, he found a saddler of good reputation, and he proposed that he serve a seven-year apprenticeship with him, which he did, and then he claimed the girl and her money as George Montague Dunk, the wedded Earl of Halifax. I'm just glad that Yvonne's dad was not a shrimp fisherman down in Louisiana with some crazy idea like that. I would have been seasick for seven years. Now, you dads don't get any ideas. It's hard enough for guys to step up to the plate without additional burdens being added. But today we see Jacob serving Laban for seven years in order to marry his daughter, Rachel. But then the story takes a surprising turn. In our last lesson, we saw Jacob on the run, uh, leaving his home because of the wrath of his brother, whom he had cheated out of his father's blessing. He was also looking for a bride. Today we come to an amazing account of God's grace, his judgment, and his provision. Over 99 years before, Jacob's grandfather's servants had been traveling along the same road with the very same mission in mind, except that they had a caravan of 10 camels loaded with provision and all the treasures of Canaan that they were taking as gifts for this would-be bride. Jacob is a fugitive, a lonely wanderer, traveling by himself without servant or escort 
on his lonely journey. But he is still looking for the bride. How bad is that? By yourself, on a long journey, on foot. And keep in mind that his father and his grandfather were wealthy men. But God specializes in turning the bad into something good. Now we want to ask the question, if you lie, cheat, and steal from others, should we expect God to prevent others from doing the same thing to us? Galatians 6 and verse 7. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. There's a great danger of self-deception in wavering back and forth between hope that what I've done is going to be okay and fear that it may not be okay. And that's exactly where the devil wants us to be, like the double-minded man in James 1. Wondering That way I can't enjoy the satisfaction of the pleasures of sin and I can't enjoy the contentment of a pure heart because I'm always hopeful but doubtful if there's that nagging burden of guilt of things that I've done. Now, what does it mean to sow to the flesh? This is not talking about the body, flesh and blood, in contrast with the mind or the heart. This is talking about the old nature the corruption of sin in contrast to holiness to which God calls us. The works of the flesh are listed in Galatians in the previous chapter. Chapter 5, verse 19, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousings, and like things as these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There are other lists in Scripture that include things that God has forgiven, such as lying and stealing on the part of Jacob after he had coveted his brother's firstborn birthright and blessing. Now, the Lord had told Rebekah, while Jacob and Esau were still in the womb, that the older would serve the younger. But the way that Jacob and his mom went about seeking to orchestrate the results of that prophecy were not right. And we've said that it's always right to do right, and it's never right to do wrong to do right. And the methods that they used of lying and cheating and stealing were certainly wrong, and today we begin to see the crop coming in for Jacob. On the other hand, sowing to the Spirit simply means cultivating and growing the fruit of the Spirit in your life. The next verse in Galatians says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And we soon realize that in our own power, we can't cultivate those things very well. We might be able to make it look good in our outward appearance, but we need the grace of God upon our lives 
to have those genuine qualities in our heart. Now keep in mind, young people, that we reap not only what we sow, we reap more than we sow, we reap later than we sow, and it may appear that things are rocking along pretty well, but then sometime later, the harvest begins to come in. And the way that we feel about the harvest depends on what we have planted. The crop really brings a double harvest, one in this life and one in the life to come. I'm not saying we'll be punished in heaven for things that we did or didn't do here, but there is the possibility of loss of reward by what we do here. Jacob is getting ready to do some reaping. What excuse do you think he used when he was doing those things that were displeasing to God? Thomas Adam lists some excuses that church people use for sin. Number one, predestination. God planned everything. He just uh, planned for that to happen. Number two, God saw it and he might have prevented it, but he didn't. So there it is. I couldn't help it. God could have kept me from doing it, but he didn't. Number three, ignorance. I didn't know any better. Number four, I used to use this one a lot when I was young. My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. So if I got a pretty good balance over on this side of the scale, then it won't hurt to add a few more things over here. I'll still be in balance. Number five, God is merciful. He'll forgive. Number six, Christ died for it. It's already paid for. And number seven, I will repent of it somewhere down the road. What kind of excuses do we use for the things that we do? Well, Jacob's arrival in Haran. We're getting to the good part now. In verses 2 through 4, we see that his journey came to an end at a well just outside Haran. He reached his destination at about the middle of the day because the sun was still high, and he found some shepherds from Haran with their flocks of sheep gathered there at the well, a well covered by a large, flat stone that probably had a small hole in the middle of it with a smaller rock on top where you could move the little rock and maybe get a drink of water, but the larger rock would have kept wild animals and the well from being contaminated. So they're all waiting there at the well, and Laban asked the shepherds in verse 5 and 6 if they knew Laban, and they reported that they did know his relative Laban, his mother's brother, and that Laban's daughter would soon be coming with her father's sheep. That's notable how God in his providence orders encounters that we could never predict or project. One day I went in the Baptist Student Union at LSU to see my friend Frank Horton, and he said, hey, there's a girl, Yvonne Sandifer, who will be here this summer in summer school, and you need to meet that girl. Now, I was in graduate school, and I could have never managed an audience with a popular young undergraduate like Yvonne, but graduate students were kind of out of the social loop and considered to be kind of weird anyway. But God can cut through all of those things and bring the meetings that we need, just like he did for Rebecca and Abraham's servant to find a wife for Isaac. 
So here is Jacob listening to this group of shepherds give the excuse about why they're not out pasturing the flock and how they have to wait until everybody gets there and then they, plural, move the stone and they all water their sheep at the same time. While he is yet talking with them in verses 9 and 10, suddenly Rachel arrives on the scene with her dad's sheep. Great ladies in the Bible like Rebecca and Ruth and Rachel and Lydia in the New Testament can be found engaged in honest labor. What did Jacob do to impress this girl? He single-handedly moved that stone from the mouth of the well and watered the sheep. He must have had a good chiropractor back in Beersheba. Then, you know, he was energized to meet this lovely girl because in verse 17, he boldly stepped right up and kissed her. She didn't know she was going to be kissed on the first date. She didn't even know it was a date. But girls, you've got to be ready for whatever's coming down the pike. I wonder if he gave her a holy kiss. Now, at the marriage conference in May, we noted that there are three kinds of kisses. There's the kiss of greeting, the kiss of affection, and the sensual kiss. When Don and I were boys, we had a couple of aunts who specialized in the kiss of affection. And we made a run for it when we saw them coming. But now the sensual kiss. Now, girls, here's the problem. You can get these things mixed up. And what you're given may not be what he's receiving or what he thinks he's receiving. So you might want to save the kiss until you get right down here at the wedding, and then you'll be sure you're not kissing somebody else's husband. Well, whatever kind of kiss it was, it must have packed a wallop because Joseph immediately lifted up his voice and wept tears of joy, crying out loud. They don't suppress the emotions in that part of the world. They still don't, in today's times, they express them. So he told Rachel that he was a relative of her father. Jacob's mother was sister to Rachel's dad. That made Jacob a kissing cousin. But you could marry cousins back then because the gene pool had not yet been contaminated for that to have been a problem. Note some lessons that we're seeing so far. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will bring it to pass. Now, when Jacob had that dream of the Lord at the top of the ladder and His protective angels sending, descending on the ladder, I think that drew him a little close to recognition that he needed the Lord in everything that he was doing. And I think he was probably praying as he came nearer to Haran about what he might find there. And then again from Psalm 37, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. We might say Jacob doesn't sound like much of a good man to me at this point. But see, he's on his way to becoming a good man as God works in his heart. The same would be true with many of us. How did the girl respond to this providential encounter? She appeared to be thrilled by the news, and she ran to tell her father. 
When he heard the news, he ran to meet Jacob, probably remembering that last group that came bearing gifts so many years ago, seeking a bride for Isaac. Then in verse 13, Laban hugged Jacob and in the Hebrew text, kissed him repeatedly. Now Jacob gets to kiss the dad as well as the daughter. And notice he didn't lift up his voice and weep at this time. Well, here comes the agreement. Verses 15 through 20. In verse 14, we're told that Jacob stayed with the family for one month. It's likely that during that time, Laban noticed he was a good worker and he knew something about sheep. So he offered him a job. At the end of the month, Laban asked Jacob, if you were going to come to work for me, how much would your wages be? Now, Jacob, I think, has been considering that, and we turn to the scripture for his answer. In verse 18 of Genesis 29, now Jacob loved Rachel. We probably ought to say Jacob loved Rachel. He was really in love. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And what do you think her dad said? Man, this looks like a good deal here. And uh, sure enough, it's better that I give you to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with us. How magnanimous of this dad. He quickly agrees to the arrangement. And verse 20, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Now, you girls are supposed to say, Aww, when we read that part. Is that not romantic? It seemed but a few days to him. A few days of labor, but guess what? He was now a servant of Laban. That's what the scripture says. He served Laban. His dad had plenty, but he has become a servant. And we want to think about why. Well, it might be a picture 2,000 years ago, the heavenly father who possessed riches untold would send his son to earth as a suffering servant in order to demonstrate his perfect love by purchasing his bride, Christ's bride, the church, with his own blood. Have you committed your life to him? Are you living for him? Don't be deceived like Jacob. Verses 21 through 30, Jacob completed his service according to the agreement, but look out, here comes the harvest. Back in chapter 27, verse 19, Jacob, the secondborn, lied, claiming to be the firstborn. Now in chapter 29, verse 25, the firstborn lied to Jacob, claiming to be the secondborn. And we're told in Proverbs, the way of transgressors is hard. Laban substituted the older daughter Leah in place of the younger daughter Rachel. Remarkable. God, along the way in life, allows his servants to gain insight into their own character when he lets someone do to them what they have done to others. And then there's another way that we gain insight. Sometimes we see in the lives of other people the crop coming in of the very seeds that we are sowing. 
and we can tell it's not a very nice crop to look forward to, and maybe we begin sowing some different seed. When did Jacob realize that Laban had deceived him? The next morning after the wedding. Here is the sister, about the same size, probably about the same speaking voice, probably wearing the same perfume, and it's dark in the tent, and the groom is completely fooled. You can't tell the difference. It's exactly the same thing that Jacob did to his poor old dad Isaac, who couldn't see very well, you remember. Well, I'm guessing that poor Leah was more than a little bit nervous when she went on this mission that her dad had given her. But she obeyed her dad and went through with it. Now, you can imagine the unsuspecting groom when the morning light began to come through the flap on the tent door. That must have been quite a surprise to him. Where's Laban? I need to have a talk with that rascal. He swindled me out of my wife. Laban probably said, cool your jets, man. You can have the other one too. He did offer Rachel if he would just uh, stay that week with Leah then he would get Rachel, but seven more years of hard labor. Hard in terms of the fact that Jacob, that Laban was always changing Jacob's wages, according to his testimony that we'll see in a later chapter there. What was the excuse? We don't ever marry off the younger before the older is married. It's against our rules. So he stayed the week with Laban, and then he gets Rachel, his true love, and his troubles begin to escalate rapidly. Affliction in the family, toil, tears, testing. That's what's coming in this family. Division and discontent in the home are a typical harvest when a marriage begins with sin. In verse 31... Leah is hated, perhaps in contrast with the love that Rachel received, but looks like hatred to her. In verse 32, she's suffering affliction. In verse 33, there is more hatred. What happens in the Bible in the event of polygamy? Well, we're going to see here Leah and Rachel, Bilhah and Zilpah, what a tangled mess that becomes. We've seen already Rebecca and Hagar and the enmity that uh, they experienced. Joseph's half-brothers trying to kill him in a lesson coming up. Hannah and Penina, you remember, Hannah couldn't have children. Penina was rubbing it in. Gideon had many wives and 70 sons. And one of his sons, born to one of his concubines, that's a second-string wife, Abimelech, murdered all of the 70 sons, his half-brothers. Solomon had his hundreds of foreign wives who turned his heart away after other gods. With polygamy, there is favoritism, strife, hatred, jealousy, and conflict. In fact, Jacob's own testimony after having married his true love, Genesis 47, 9, he's telling Pharaoh... I'm 130 years old, 
and few and wretched have been the years of my life. What a poor testimony for a guy who married his true love. Well, we see in Scripture that polygamy never turns out well. You could see why the practice would not be acceptable in our culture unless, of course, you do it one wife at a time. You could have more than one wife, but only one at a time is the way it's supposed to work for us. The phenomenon of the American dating system has become the standard in the development of social relationships in our culture in less than 100 years. This has resulted, I believe, in effective preparation for more than one wife. In the dating system, you begin when you're about age 13 in middle school, and you get paired off, and you would go with that one as long as the emotional bonding holds up, and when it breaks down, you would break up with that one and find another one. You would go with this one and this one and this one and this one and this one for perhaps a decade. And then you get married and intend to stick with this one for the rest of your life. But that doesn't appear to be the track record of what's going on in our culture. Well, once I was teaching at the Alert Basic Training Program in Michigan, and it was the first week for a group of new recruits and We were weighing in on finding God's will and love, courtship, and marriage. And there were three guys there who were so put out with the push-ups and the entire program that they decided they couldn't stand it any longer, and they packed their bags to go back home. They were especially incensed by my less-than-sympathetic remarks concerning the American dating system. So I walked in the office, and there they were, all packed up, waiting to be taken to the bus station. I said, men, they were about 18, 19 years old, three of them. I said, men, I really need your help. Could you tell me briefly what you like so well about the American dating system? Oh, they jumped on that opportunity. And I was writing as quickly as I could as they were telling me the reasons they liked the American dating system. They were very brief and succinct, and here's what they said. I like it, the dating system. It's fun. Number three, I get to know her mentally, emotionally, physically. No kidding. Number four, makes me feel important. Number five, makes me feel loved. Number six, gives me support. Number seven, someone for me to talk to. Number eight, helps me feel good. Number nine, gives me insight into my problems. Number 10, someone for me to care for. That sounded to me like these guys could be writing country and western music. I'm going to get me some good loving tonight. Well, whatever. Now, I'm not talking about mature young ladies and men who are going out to eat somewhere to a concert. I'm talking about when you're barely hitting 13 And you're getting paired off, and that's going to be the process for about the next decade of your life. What do you do when you get tired of her? You just break up, and you find somebody else, and you move on down the line. All kind of songs have been written about that, but we won't sing any of them this morning. Typically, this cycle goes on dozens of times before you get to the real thing, and that is the wedding. 
So I would suggest to you that uh, you want to give some careful thought to the development of social relationships in your life, in the lives of sons and daughters. In the Bible, we do see that one man and one woman is the combination that is extolled in Scripture. A lot of times we wonder, well, they had polygamy. Abraham, great man of faith, he practiced polygamy. Why did God let them do that? Well, God is merciful. God is merciful on things that we do. He hadn't destroyed our nation at this point, even though we murder millions of children in the womb. But the Bible does say, in a number of places, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Proverbs 5.18, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, not the 15 wives of your youth. Proverbs 18.22, He who finds a wife, singular, finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. 19.14, Houses and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Amen. Proverbs 31, we're familiar with that passage, an excellent wife, who can find? For her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. Suppose you had 15 to trust in. Uh, You can see where Solomon really had some problems. And then in Ecclesiastes, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Now, because Jacob loved Rachel and Leah was unloved, God decided to compensate for that predicament in which she found herself. God opened her womb. This is in verse 31 through 35. He opened her womb and she gave birth to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and then Judah. And then in chapter 30 to Issachar, Zebulun, and then a daughter named Dinah. Now looking back to the contrast of Abraham finding a wife for Isaac and then Isaac doing nothing about finding a wife for his sons uh, in light of his father's example that he had set for him, let's ask the question, what if, what if Isaac had been wise enough to do the same thing for his two boys. Now, be careful. We never want to chafe against God's providence of things that have taken place in the past. We can't do anything about that. That's past history. It's gone. But what kind of seed are we sowing now that's going to make a difference in the future, either for good or for not so good, or for disaster. Forget what lies behind, Paul says. You can't change it, but you can learn from it. Now keep in mind that Isaac inherited all of Abraham's wealth, and he was indeed a wealthy man. But while he was lounging around enjoying those wild game dinners that Esau provided for him, He could have been up and about packing a caravan to send back over to Haran to get some girls to marry his sons, Jacob and Esau. Wouldn't that have been something? 
That's where we're going anyway, back to the family where they know and worship Jehovah. Now keep in mind Laban's cultural quirk about who gets married when. Who gets married first? Leah, the eldest. So when the caravan arrived, guess who gets Leah? Esau, the eldest, gets the eldest daughter. If they had been working it out the same way Abraham did. As my mother used to say, she would have settled his half, I believe. Leah, yeah. She was the most prolific by far, and sons were very important in those days. Those six boys, if Esau had been their dad, could have been out hunting and fishing with him all the time instead of getting into trouble that they did get into later on. But that's hindsight, 2020 in the past, in retrospect. But now who is the youngest? Sweet Rachel is the younger daughter. And she would have been given, I suppose, to Jacob, and he could have saved 20 years of his life working for a bigger chiseler than he was. And Rachel could have avoided that curse, perhaps, on the one who stole the household gods in Genesis 31-32. That was the curse that came true in her life as she died when she was giving birth to Benjamin. And mom and dad, Isaac and Rebekah, could have been saved all that grief from Esau marrying those Canaanite girls that just caused havoc for Isaac and Rebekah. Now that's looking back, and we can say, yeah, that would have been nice. But we want to be looking forward in the future. What kind of seed would you be sowing today that's going to bring a harvest of righteousness and peace tomorrow? One thing is certain. We need God's guidance for the planting process. This morning, do you need to repent of the crop that you have sown or that you continue to sow now? Come to Christ. Confess your sin. Put your faith and trust in Him. With His help, get rid of the bad seed and start planting something good in your life. Familiar verse with which we close, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct you your paths. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Scripture you give us a lot of direction. You give us a road map for our lives. But not only that, you give us a guide to go with us in your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for that. Lord, how grateful we are that we don't reap the full harvest of what we have sown because we know what we deserve. But we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you for this account of Jacob as you guided him to the women who will become mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Lord, there are a lot of things that uh, look strange to us as Americans because these things are not acceptable in our culture. But help us to understand that they had the same hearts as we have and the same struggles and the same troubles. We thank you that we are a part of the bride of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we might behave in the church like the bride and that we might be pure and spotless awaiting that day when you come to claim your bride at the end of time. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today who does not know you, perhaps they have been in church all their lives, but they know in their heart that there's really no true relationship with you, that you're not the Lord and King of their lives. I pray, Lord, that you would bring the power of your Spirit to work, that they might see their need for repentance and true faith in Christ. Thank you that you make it available to us. And then, Lord, I want to pray for all of the young people here, and I pray that they might consider this business of reaping and sowing and that you would give them the power and motivation to sow the right seed in their lives even when it's not easy, even when the culture is sowing everything else pleasurable and that which looks pretty good on the outside. Lord, we pray for wisdom for moms and dads as they guide young people, especially in the very important decisions regarding a life's partner. Thank you that you are sovereign and that you provide for us in the same way that you provided for Jacob and these characters in the Bible about which we're studying. We commit all these things to you now in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.